Great, we're in Daniel. Daniel chapter 4. We have a deadline to meet. We've got to get to the end of Daniel before Christmas, before Jesus comes. Maybe he'll come quite literally and we won't get to the end of Daniel. Um, We shall see. Hashtag walking with lions. Why? Because that was the call on Daniel's life and his friends and some of Israel. They were to serve God amongst the lions of Babylon. Those that would prowl around seeking anything and anyone to devour. And Daniel has been placed right at the heart of this pagan empire. And we've seen in chapter 1 that as Daniel messed about with his diet, he ended up uh, more healthy looking and looking stronger and fitter than all those that ate from the king's food. And we've seen in chapter 2 that there was a mighty statue that one little stone, one little rock was able to completely bring to its knees. And we've seen in chapter 3 that a furnace can get very hot, but if you can't stand the heat, don't get in the fire. And now we're into the heart of chapter 4. This great, mighty ruler, Nebuchadnezzar, the greatest, most powerful man in the whole of the known world at that time, is literally brought to his knees and finds himself in total madness. Verse 33, the heart of the chapter. He was driven away from people. This is the mighty king, Nebuchadnezzar, and ate grass Like the ox, his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. There is a road that ends in madness. Ever since the beginning of Daniel, the book, we see that God has been trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. This tyrant evil, pagan, malicious, fitful, erratic, irrational king was on God's heart. And God has been systematically trying to get his attention. And at each stage of the journey, Nebuchadnezzar is kind of awakened to the reality of a sovereign God. But as we'll see in a moment, he misses the mark so often. So chapter 1, verse 19 Daniel and his friends have experimented with this vegetarian diet and ended up looking stronger and better than all the king's men. So the king's attention is drawn to Daniel and the other guys. And the king talked with them and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. What is God doing? He's trying to get Daniel's, sorry, trying to get Nebuchadnezzar's attention. And God in his wisdom has placed his own men right in front of King Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 2, it gets a bit more blunt. Your kingdom and the kingdoms that follow you, Nebuchadnezzar, will be crushed by a small stone that will grow up to reign over the whole earth forever. And the stone, the rock is... We've done all that. So verse 46 of chapter 2. What was Nebuchadnezzar's response to what God revealed to him in chapter 2? Then Nebuchadnezzar fell prostrate before Daniel. What a dummy. What a numpty. What a muppet. Paid Daniel honor and ordered that an offering and incense be presented to Daniel. So Nebuchadnezzar begins to become awakened 
to the reality of Daniel's God in chapter 1 and again in chapter 2. But instead of worshipping God himself, he ends up worshipping Daniel. Instead of paying homage to God, he ends up giving homage to God's servant. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't nail it. He understands the right words, but it doesn't get worked out in his actions. Look at verse 47, the very next verse. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and the Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you are able to reveal this mystery. He knows the right answer. Isn't that amazing? This pagan king knows the right answer. He says, your God is the top God, but he still only bows down to Daniel. There's a lesson right there, isn't there? Do we bring our lives into line with what we say is the truth? Do we bring our lives into line with what we say is the truth? Then you get the whole miracle of the furnace. And you think if anything would get Nebuchadnezzar to finally bow his knee to the sovereign God, it would have been this amazing sight of three people in a furnace that was seven times hotter than any other furnace, added by a fourth person, and all of them lived. And in fact, it's a pretty good response at first sight from Nebuchadnezzar, verse 28 of chapter 3. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Brilliant! He's got it. No, verse 29. Therefore I decree... That the people of any nation or language who say anything against the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego be cut into pieces and the houses be burned into piles of rubble for no other God can save in this way. So what Nebuchadnezzar says, what he's beginning to understand intellectually doesn't get worked out in his life. He says to Daniel and his friends, yes, I recognize that your God is the God of heaven and earth. Your God is the God who's able to save. But he doesn't work that into his life and say, therefore, I and my nation will bow to this supreme God. Instead, he says, well, if you give people who do bow to that God some hassle, then we'll burn you and put you in a pile of rubble. Because he was that sort of chap. How about there's only one God, Nebuchadnezzar, to bow down to? How many opportunities has Nebuchadnezzar had to nail it? And each time he, he, he starts to give some intellectual assent to what's going on, but he never follows it through in his heart and then into his life. Have we ever done that? Just saying. Giving intellectual assent to something and then never quite followed it through in our heart and in our lives. Have you ever said, that was a brilliant sermon, Simon, and then did absolutely nothing about it? I find that in other places where I go and preach, but I've yet to discover it here, (laughs) this Sunday. So easy, isn't it? To get the thought right or to say the right thing, but somehow for it not to go deep enough to make a life change. This is Nebuchadnezzar's story. And so we arrive at chapter 4, 
And chapter 4 is really interesting because the story is told from Nebuchadnezzar's perspective. Chapter 4 is different to the others because it's Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. He shares how God has dealt with him. Verse 2, it is my pleasure to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. He sounds a different man already, don't you think? Something has changed, but we'll come to that later. What does he say then in chapter 4? What's his testimony? Well, his testimony at the beginning of chapter 4 is that he had another dream that he didn't understand. And he hasn't learned very much because he still went to all these normal astrologers, magicians and advisors and asked them for help to interpret the dream. I thought they were all dead by now. And then when they can't help, he then goes, well, perhaps I better get Daniel all over again. It's getting boring, isn't it? Learn something, Nebuchadnezzar. Put into your action what you know is true in your, in your head. And, and God says basically through the dream that Daniel interprets, you have carried on, Nebuchadnezzar, boasting that you are the top dog and everything that you have, you alone have achieved. If you carry on like that, I, the true sovereign Lord, who in fact has given you that place of honor and given you everything that you have achieved, I will cut you down. And so you get the image of a tree uh, with an axe and the tree gets cut down and a, only a stump is left. And he still refused to listen. And so in verse 33, where we began, he got cut down. And one day, just like that, he was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like feathers of an eagle and his nails like claws of a bird. Nebuchadnezzar had discovered that there is a road, there is a path, that if you persist on it, will end in madness. So what is that road? And if we were travelling along that road unwittingly, what would be the signposts that we might see along that road that would alert us that we're on a road that we don't really, in the end, want to be on? We've all gone the wrong way, and we've all thought, should I be seeing signs to Norwich on my way to London? Should I? So maybe there are some signs that would help us understand that perhaps part of our lives are on a road that we really didn't want them to be on. What might they be? It ends in madness when we don't listen and respond to God's voice. It ends in madness, insanity, when we don't listen and respond to God's voice. Now, Nebuchadnezzar's story, in a sense, is a global story. It ends in the madness, the insanity of an eternity without God. If we persistent and willfully fail to listen and respond to his voice. That's the gospel story. The good news, that there is a way out of this insanity, a way out of this madness. But it's also Nebuchadnezzar's story, true for us on a global, but also a personal level. It's a personal truth, that when I fail to listen and to respond to what God is saying to me, I'm also nudging my life 
towards a place of madness. For the sovereign Lord, the loving Father of the universe, the God who is always good and gives good gifts to his kids, for me to listen and not to do it is insane. Intellectually. And we know in our hearts, but it's hard sometimes to connect those two up. And it was subtle, wasn't it, for Nebuchadnezzar? Because he was kind of listening. Each time, at the end of chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, each time he makes some kind of statement, he says the right thing. Wow, Daniel, your God's pretty good. Wow, Daniel, your God is amazing. I'm going to bow to you, Daniel. Well, then chapter 3, your God can do everything. He's the only God that can save. So, just make sure you don't get upset with anyone who chooses to worship him along with all these other gods that we're worshipping here in Babylon, of which I am the greatest. You see, when it talks about other gods, Nebuchadnezzar was understood to be the supremo god in human flesh. It's insanity not to respond when we hear the voice of God. But it can be subtle, and we can say the right things and feel like we've responded, feel like we've understood, feel like we've done it, and it never gets worked out in our lives. Has God been trying to get your attention about something for a very long time? Are you aware, as you think about it in this moment, as the Holy Spirit touches your life, That there is a pattern of God trying to say something to you that you haven't yet done something about. Are you suddenly now thinking about something that at other times you've often thought about and you've gone through the loop and for whatever reason you've lost it and you moved on. And then God has said it again and you've, oh, and then again. And here you are again. Round the same loop. Do you know that you have heard God speak and still not done something about it. Or even listened and agreed. Yes, God, you're right. Yes, I will do something about that. I will start tomorrow. And, and so the Spirit just right now brings to mind something that you've carried for too long and not worked it out. In your, that's a sign that we're on the road to insanity. That's the journey towards madness. For God to be speaking to us and for us to persist, be persistent in our not really rooting it into our lives, into practice. The discipleship questions are these, aren't they? What is God saying and what are you going to do about it? And so Nebuchadnezzar perhaps got as far as thinking about what God might be saying. In his most open moments, he was saying, hey, your God, Daniel, is great. What are you going to do about it? Absolutely nothing. And so he's failed. Not completing the loop was what took Nebuchadnezzar to the place of insanity. Not completing that same loop, what is God saying and what am I going to do about it, also takes us to that same place of madness. In other words... Not responding to what God is saying to you will eventually catch up with you. It's like what people say, your sins will find you out. It'll catch up with you. Well, it's not just like that. It is the same as that. Because to hear the sovereign God speak and not to do anything about it is a 
It's a what? It's a sin. Isn't it? Be sure your sins will find... Be sure that if you, if you hear God speak and don't follow that through, push through to rooting what God is saying into your life, it will catch up with you. That's the Nebuchadnezzar story. It's a global story. It's a personal story for all of us. So chapter 4 is full of what Nebuchadnezzar needed to do, but failed so tragically until now. Look at verse 17. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. That was the core that Nebuchadnezzar needed to grasp hold of and root into his life that there was a God who's sovereign over all, who has given all of it to Nebuchadnezzar. And that without that sovereign God, Nebuchadnezzar of himself would have nothing, zero, zilch. That's the core that in the end, Nebuchadnezzar perhaps was listening to or could even articulate intellectually, but was not allowing to get worked out in his life. And in normal, uh, modern communication, there are plenty of ways to highlight things, especially in written communication. You can put something in bold, you can put in italics, you can change the fault, you can change the color, and you can tell someone who's just learned how to do all those things because the single page is covered with all kinds of different random formatting, and it looks like a dog's breakfast, and it communicates nothing. But in this culture, the only way you could emphasize something was to repeat it. So you get this idea in chapter 4, repeated at least three times, about how what Nebuchadnezzar needed to respond to was that the sovereign Lord was indeed the one in charge of everything and that he needed to be honored for all. Look at verse 25. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You will eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew. Seven times will pass for you until you acknowledge that the most high, until you acknowledge that the most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Again, sovereign overall. Again, in verse 32, almost a repeat of that verse. Seven times will pass by you until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth. So firstly, it ends in madness when we fail to listen and respond to God's voice. But secondly, it ends in madness when we fail to honor God above all else. When we fail to honor God above all else, that was his mistake. There were times when he sort of accepted that God was sovereign in a way, that God could save in a way, but not above all else. He just put Daniel's God alongside all the other gods. And isn't that a global story? Nebuchadnezzar's reality, our global reality, that you can, you can do that. You can worship that God and worship that one and worship that one and we can all be happy about that. And it doesn't really matter if worshipping that one somehow contradicts worshipping that one, somehow undermines worshipping that one. We just live with the complexity. Be modern and be free. Live with the tension. Enjoy the fact that it doesn't make any sense. A global story. The spirit of our age is exactly like that. 
Daniel's God is great, so honour him. Jesus is great, honour him if you want to. Which is why in our culture, it's actually quite cool to say you follow Jesus, believe it or not. Depending on what generation you are, is whether you'll think that's true or not. But to say that we must all follow Jesus is now universally almost unacceptable. You see the difference? So Nebuchadnezzar was very happy to say, yeah, worship Daniel's God. And the people that worship Daniel's God, they should be protected. They should have rights. Give those Christians some rights. If they want to go to church and mess around with their ancient religion, let them carry on. They're not hurting anyone. In fact, they're the biggest volunteer organization in the country. And without them, the country would collapse. Let us let them carry on. But don't let them say that we all have to do it. And that becomes intolerable in our age to speak like that. So Nebuchadnezzar was creating the very kind of culture that we are part of. But it's also a personal story for us. Because are there parts of your life where you're not convinced yet that you're honouring God above all else? That's certainly true for me. What about you? In what aspects of my life am I failing to honour God? Above all else. Whereby saying, yeah, you're the sovereign Lord. But when it comes to my job, I'm going to operate like I'll give my job everything. Or when it comes to my image, I'm not going to love Jesus through that. I'm trying to love myself or get other people to love me through it. Through attitudes and relationships and circumstance and behavior and thoughts. Are we consistently living out that Jesus is the sovereign Lord above all else? Not yet, if we're honest. Not yet. So in the end, it all catches up with us. As it did with Nebuchadnezzar. And it all catches up with him this day when he has this dream and God comes to him again. And Nebuchadnezzar ends up like a beast of the field because he failed to listen and respond to God's voice. Because he failed to put God first above all else. And I think there are challenges there for all of us. But I want you to see, perhaps more than anything this morning, I want you to see God's mercy to Nebuchadnezzar. You say it wasn't very merciful, sending him out into that field. Well, I don't know. Think for a moment about God's mercy to this pagan, evil, tyrant king. Think about the journey. Think about how the Bible reveals that Nebuchadnezzar is on God's heart. And how does God respond? Firstly, God in his mercy gives us and gave Nebuchadnezzar people. God sent Daniel to Nebuchadnezzar. God sent Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego to Nebuchadnezzar. God sent a whole community of the Judean elite to Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 8. So many friends and advisors turned out to be useless. But then Daniel came into my presence and I told him the dream. And as we know, Daniel was able to interpret it. God's mercy is this. He gives us people who will be our true friends. Friends 
who will tell you the truth when you need to hear it. Now that's true of Daniel, isn't it? Think about how faithful Daniel had been in presenting the truth. Think how faithful unto death Meshach, Shadrach and Abednego had been in presenting truth. And see here again in chapter 4 how tough it was for Daniel to do that. Daniel is, my paraphrase, well scared to tell Nebuchadnezzar the interpretation of the dream. Not surprisingly, because Nebuchadnezzar killed most people who said something he didn't like. Verse 19, then Daniel was greatly perplexed when he'd begun to understand the interpretation of the dream for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. What's he thinking? He's thinking what you and I are thinking often. Do I have to tell the truth? Do I need to be... What if I tell a half-truth? How can I dress this truth up so it's no longer really the truth, but I feel good enough that I've told the truth? He's perplexed. He's terrified by what he has to say to Nebuchadnezzar. But he pushes through because he's a man of prayer. And so the king says, ironically, the king says, Daniel, Belshazzar, which was the king's name for Daniel, don't be worried. Daniel's like, I'm dead scared telling you this. You'll have my head before I've got to the end of it. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning your adversaries. Clearly, he's scared out of his mind. And we're in that place sometimes, aren't we? I can't say that to them. They're my friend. It'll hurt them. I'll upset them. That's not the model of Jesus, though, is it? Remember when Peter was uh, getting the answers right? It's easy to get the answers right, isn't it? And the heart wrong. Peter got the answer right. Yeah, you're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He got the right answer. But his heart was all messed up because then Jesus said, well, what's going to happen is that I'm going to go to, uh, to the cross. And Peter goes, no, I'm not part of anything like that. I don't want to be part of a mission that goes to the cross. And Jesus says to Peter... Get behind me, Satan. (laughs) That was Jesus that said that. And then there were two guys walking along the road, James and John, and they were kind of going, well, you know, um, uh, we've been chatting away and our mum's involved in this and really when we get to heaven, we want to be sitting in the best seats. Like it's a cinema booking or something. (laughs) And Jesus says, man, I've got to tell you, you haven't got a clue what you're asking. Because you can't do what I'm about to do. You haven't got no idea what you're asking. Sometimes Jesus could be very blunt with his disciples. And what did Jesus say to his disciples? He said, I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. And I will lay down my life for my friends. And Jesus modeled this incredible um, coming together of, of love and truth. Who are your true friends? The people that love you enough to tell you the truth. Who are your true friends? The people that love you enough to tell you the truth. Now, I don't mean the people who will tell you the truth. There are plenty of people who aren't your friends who will happily tell you the truth. And that's a totally different thing altogether. And there's no fun in that. That cuts you down, it cuts you up, it destroys relationships, it destroys people, it's horrible, it's gossipy, it's rubbish, it's cruel, and the Bible says that it's evil. So, got that straight. But who are the people that love you enough to push through? I'm pretty scared about saying this because we're friends and I don't want to hurt you. I'm pretty scared about saying this because you might be angry and cross with me and it might have, it might have trouble with our friendship. 
Who are, who are the people that are going to push through that to tell you the truth? Because we all need those kinds of people. You see, true friendship, true discipleship is that combination of I'm going to love you and I'm going to be truthful with you. I want a relationship with you and I'll be honest about the things for which together we are responsible. So are your friendships characterized more by love or by truth? Because typically we, we have a natural tendency to be towards one or the other. There are people that will love you and you know they'll just never say anything that's real because they love you and it's all kind of therefore become a bit too soppy. And then there are people who tell you the truth. So every time you enter the room with them, you stand well back. Because you know it's coming. And we all have a bit of a bent. Which one are you? Which one are you? Would you sacrifice truth for love? Or would you rather sacrifice love for truth? Well, I had to tell them it's the truth. As they're lying, bleeding on the floor. Or, actually, I love them so much, I'll leave them in their mess and I won't tell them what I think is true. The coming together of these two things. Daniel was brilliant at it. And the reason that Nebuchadnezzar was discipled from being a pagan king to worshipping the Lord, the God of heaven and earth, was because of Daniel's brilliant discipleship skills. Every time, look at the way he's sensitive and caring and kind to a pagan tyrant called Nebuchadnezzar who was involved in witchcraft and child sacrifice. But yet, every time, Daniel would be as truthful as or as straight as a die. Is that a saying? Do we say that? What does that mean? Anyone know? Anyway, answers on a postcard. Truth and love. And it's what Jesus modeled. It's what Daniel did brilliantly. Notice secondly, so God's mercy, in God's mercy, he gives us people. Like he did for Nebuchadnezzar. Notice secondly, in God's mercy, he gives us time. He gives us time. How long had all this journey from Daniel chapter 1 been going on? We know that in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel was just a teenager, probably about 14 years of age. It's incredible, I know. Clearly by verse 1 of chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar's, or is it verse 4 of chapter 4? Don't know. Have I got that verse right? Anyone got a Bible open in front of them? You should have your Bibles open because I've made the last half an hour up. None of it's in there, you know. (laughs) Just putting words on the screen and saying it's in the Bible. Is it correct? Verse 4, is it? Verse 4, great. Okay. Um, Nebuchadnezzar was at home in my palace, content and prosperous. Literally, he was like at peace from being a king. So he'd conquered all the known world. And it's kind of like he just sat down and go, well, there you are. I've done it. I'm in charge of the whole world. What's on a telly? So, so he's reached that stage. So how many years did it take for him to get to that stage? How many, a decade or more? I don't know. Whatever, whatever we do know is it wasn't like a day or an hour. It was a long sweep of time that, that God had persistently been trying to reach out to Nebuchadnezzar. Faithful, patient, persistent, loving, kind. It's not like those timeshares. 
with the people that sell those, are persistent, loving, faithful. Kind. No, the timeshare people, you can have this, you can have this country in the world all to yourself if you sign in the next 30 seconds. Or there are only three left. What are all those techniques putting pressure on? You have to do it now. Well, well, God didn't come to Nebuchadnezzar like that. Incredibly faithful, incredibly persistent. The offer ends today. Well, there would be a day when the offer would end, but it was after a decade, probably, or more, of the offer being on the table. How much time do you need to do the right thing? How much time has God given you in what he's asking you to do that you know that you're still wrestling with? But more, notice that even after the dream, (laughs) there's loads of time. So think about it. Nebuchadnezzar has this dream. He's really troubled. Daniel says, this dream's really bad news, Nebuchadnezzar. Basically, it means that the whole of the kingdom's going to be taken from you, and you're going to be cut down to pieces. And Nebuchadnezzar goes... Verse 28, all this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. What does verse 29 say? Twelve months later. So what's Nebuchadnezzar been doing for 12 months? Hmm, wonder if Daniel was serious. You know that night I really felt that some power bigger than me was speaking, but maybe it was just the pizza. And maybe Nebuchadnezzar had never meant to do nothing. He just thought, well, why do today what I can put off till tomorrow? And before he knew it, he'd put it off for a month. And then before he knew it, he'd put it off for a whole year. And then 12 months later, he'd forgotten all about it, obviously, because he gets up onto his palace, he looks over his kingdom, and he goes, ah, look how fantastic I am. I built all this, you know. Bang, suddenly it's all over. Before he knows it, he's out in the field. Time's up. God gives us time. Is there something today that you know is in the category, maybe tomorrow? Maybe it should move categories. Maybe. God gives us people. God gives us time. But certainly, just like with Nebuchadnezzar, God gives us discipline. Discipline. Why doesn't God just zap him? If I'd have been God, I think I would have zapped him. I think I would have gone, well, he's a pretty useless king anyway. The world would be better off without him. Let's just zap him. Come to think of it, why doesn't God zap me? It's hard to believe that a church would ever need something to wake them up, isn't it? But here in the scriptures, they needed something to wake them up. It's a kindness. Maybe you're going through a situation right now and you're thinking, is this discipline? Is God disciplining me for something? I think my first question is this. Do you know what it is, if he is? Because if you don't know what the discipline's for, then it's not really discipline. It doesn't work, does it? Punishing a child for something they don't know what they've done wrong is totally pointless. Wouldn't you agree? Achieve absolutely nothing. So if you're in a situation and you're going through some stuff and you think, well, perhaps God's disciplining me. Do you know why? Now, let's put that to one side for a moment. People go through all kinds of situations and all kinds of circumstances, and often people jump very quickly and go, oh, God doesn't love me anymore, God hates me, God's disciplining me, God's this. It's all God's fault. There are plenty of things that go on in life that isn't directly God's fault in that kind of way. God's not the evil tyrant we sometimes make him out to be when things go wrong. He's a loving, gracious father. But 
It is true that God disciplines. And it might be that in a particular situation that you're facing, God is disciplining you, but you don't know what it's for because your heart or your listening ear is inclined to be deaf. Have you ever told off a child and say, do you understand why you're facing this punishment? And they go, no. Well, I told you, wasn't listening. Wasn't listening. Don't want to listen, not interested, don't want to understand. So we can adopt, can you see how we can adopt that spirit? I'm not listening, I don't want to listen, I don't understand. So my kind of encouragement of all of us is that whatever we're going through, we adopt the position that says, or at least ask the question, what is God trying to teach me in this season? Now the season might have come for all kinds of different ways, but you can bet your bottom dollar that there is something that God has to teach you in it, wouldn't you say? Unless you've learned everything, in which case one step to glory as you step out the door. There's probably something we need to learn still. And maybe God's using right now. The thing is, when I'm in the middle of the thing, the mess, the circumstance, what's the thing I'm most focused on? Getting out of it. Seeing it come to an end. So when my life goes upside down, you know, that happens to vicars as well. When that all happens, the thing that I instantly want is to get out of it. I want to solve it. I, I want it finished. I want it over with. I want it done. Could it be that in that season, God has something he wants to teach us? And it's so much better to learn that thing than to get out of the season. And the reason that it's so much better is that God does give us discipline. But then lastly, God gives us a new beginning. God gives us a new beginning. At the end of that time, we don't know whether it was seven days, seven weeks, seven months, seven sevens or seven. But seven is an interesting number, isn't it? Seven's a perfect, heavenly number. At God's appointed time, all under God's control, at the, at the fullness of what Nebuchadnezzar needed to learn, at the appointed time, seven times, I raised my eyes towards heaven and my sanity was restored. And I praised the Most High and I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Here's a man with a changed heart. Here's a man with a changed heart. And notice why it's so good to ask the question, what is God teaching me? Because when we go through the valley of discipline, when we go through the valley of struggle and still find God out of the other side, he always gives us more than we started with. Verse 36. At the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles thought me out. And I was restored to my throne. Oh, that's what he already had. And became even greater than before. Don't you love the truth of the gospel? That when God takes us through these places and we come out the other side, he gives us more than we started with. He gives us more than we've lost. In Eden, Adam and Eve were in a garden. So they lost a garden. The end of Revelation, when it's all given back, what do they get? A city. How cool is that? A garden 
Don't just get a garden back, you get a whole city back. God always gives back more than we've lost. And look at how it all ends in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the King of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just and those who walk in pride he's able to humble. What a testimony from the greatest man who in that day had ever walked the earth. Is that verse your testimony? I, Simon, I, your name, Praise and exalt and glorify the King of Heaven because everything He does is right. Is there a disconnect suddenly between your head and your heart? You're angry about something? Do you feel God's been unfair? Hasn't dealt with you justly? And all His ways are just. Does that pull on something in your experience? Well, God hasn't been fair and just to me. So where do you need to bow the knee? And in the end, like Nebuchadnezzar, say, well, he's the sovereign Lord. And I put all of my life into his hands. And I honor him with all that I am. Because that's the way to come out the other side. And to know the full restoration of everything that God has for us. So there you go. That's Daniel chapter 4. In my quick summary, let's pray.